1: honestly I felt like my career something that I'd finally found meaning in was being questioned my talent was being completely repudiated and disparaged and I was ashamed humiliated and inconsolable at that time
0: Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative
2: and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice
0: right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co And keep listening for this week's latest episode. This week's guest is multi-talented and globally respected. She's a designer, author, educator, artist, brand expert, and host of one of the world's longest running and highly respected podcasts, Design Matters. Yes, we're talking about the incredible... Debbie Millman.
2: Named one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company and one of the most influential designers working today by Graphic Design USA, Debbie's written six books, her artwork's been exhibited in numerous galleries, and she co-founded the world's first Masters in
0: Branding. She's also one of the most authentic and thoughtful people we've met, isn't she? Yeah, she sure is. Debbie's childhood was far from idyllic and she suffered from physical, emotional, and sexual abuse that left her searching for safety and security in her adult life. It also took her many years before she found a job and
2: a career she was good at. And that career, as you'll hear, was in branding. She was president of Sterling Brands for 20 years and grew the company from 15 people to 150 before selling the business. She's created so many iconic brands that you see in stores including haagen
0: Burger King, 7 Up, and Star Wars merchandise. That's for sure. In this episode, you'll learn how the worst day of Debbie's life ended up also being the most important day of her life. Why she feels branding is one of the most significant disciplines in our culture and lives today. Her advice about developing self-esteem and what she's learned from over 500 podcast interviews with amazing people. Without further
2: ado, enjoy this episode with the insightful and inspiring Debbie Millman.
0: Well, Debbie Millman, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you.
1: It's wonderful to be here. Really honored to be speaking with you both.
0: Oh, and we are so excited to be speaking with you. And I imagine you are in your beloved home of Manhattan.
1: No, actually, I'm not. (laughs) Oh, wow. Where are you? I'm in California. I'm in Los Angeles. March 15th, I made the decision with my then fiance, now my wife, to be with her in her home in Los Angeles. We thought it would be a bit easier for us to have a house as opposed to an apartment and to have a car instead of a subway, and to have a bit more sun and sky. And so March 15th, I came to Los Angeles. I've been here ever since. And we're actually about to go back to New York on Sunday. So wow. I haven't been to New York in six months, the longest ever in my life. Wow. And congratulations. So a
0: COVID wedding. <laughs> yes,
1: COVID <laughs> wedding, masks and all. Oh, my goodness.
0: Oh, wow. Congratulations. That's wonderful Yeah, that's great. (laughs) Well, we should dive in. And we tend to start our conversations the same way with all of our guests. And the question we love to begin with is, how would you describe what you do today in a couple of sentences if you just met somebody at a dinner party for the first time?
1: Um, Well, I would say that I'm a designer, an author, an educator, and host of the podcast Design Matters. That's fantastic. And I can't wait
0: for us to dive in and uh, learn more about that. And I think um, that's a very brief and tight summary and it sort of undersells so many of your achievements and everything. So we shall try and reveal some of those as we go along. We love to go right back and love to ask you about your childhood and where you grew up and how your childhood was.
1: Well, as I mentioned, I'm a native New Yorker. I was born in Brooklyn, in Borough Park, Brooklyn, and lived there for the first two years of my life, and then moved to Howard Beach, Queens, which was a brand new neighborhood in the suburbs of New York City. And I lived there until I was in the middle of third grade and stayed there for about two and a half years. My parents my father uh, was a pharmacist and bought a pharmacy on Staten Island, and so we moved to Staten Island, the family, um, and I was there until the end of fifth grade. My mom and dad at that point got divorced. My mom quickly got remarried. We moved to Long Island, and I lived on Long Island from sixth grade to 12th grade, and then moved to Albany to go to college. I went to the State University of New York at Albany Lived there for the four years I was in college and then hightailed it to Manhattan, where I've been ever since till COVID.
0: Yeah. And I believe your family life was pretty tough. How has that shaped who you've become?
1: Well, I think our early childhood experiences always shape who we are in ways we sometimes understand and sometimes don't. I was born, you know, all things considered into a rather privileged life. You know, I'm a cis white woman and have a life that is privileged in all the ways that cis white women's lives are. But I was brought up in an environment where my parents didn't get along. I don't ever remember there being a time where they did. And So I was brought up with a lot of turbulence, and then after they got divorced, I was subjected to quite a lot of abuse, physical, emotional, and sexual. That shaped a lot of my sense of safety and security and self-sufficiency in ways I'm still trying to make sense of now, in a lot of ways. But then was able to get away from the house and started to build a life for myself in my twenties after college, that was in many ways trying to rewire who I am and how I am and what I am ever since.
2: Wow. What an incredible story. And you've been on an amazing journey, but when you were back there, what, what did you want to be when you grew up? Safe. Safe. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
1: And, and, you know, a lot of my sense of Safety and security came from being independent, being financially independent, and that really was my lead gene for a very, very long time. And that's really, looking back at my life, my only real regret, having that as a lead gene, because while financial independence is great, it also can come at a cost of its own in that you trying to organize your life around something that doesn't really provide long-term safety and security. You know, it's it's only helpful to a degree, but deep security and safety is manifested internally as opposed to externally. And so because of that being a lead gene, I made decisions very early on in my career that were based on security as opposed to creativity.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so how did your early career start?
1: Well, I worked on the student newspaper in college and that gave me some design chops, very basic. And from there, I moved to Manhattan and with a little bit of skills that I'd acquired working on the student newspaper, I looked for jobs in design, in sort of traditional paste up and layout, which were very old school in terms of how it's all constructed now. But I had really good, strong skills on the drafting table and and looked for a job wherein I could use those skills and got a job at a newspaper, a cable newspaper. And back in the 80s, cable was the big technology of the time and uh, worked both as an editor and an art director and designer at that magazine over the first year of my career and then really spiraled into a whole slew of experiments and rejection and failure, worked as a marketing director for a real estate developer and Hated that, got fired, ended up working as a freelance designer and trying to make it as a freelance designer while also making some money as a cashier in a health food store and as a secretary to a nutritionist. And then I ended up getting another job at a magazine called Rock Bill and while there working as an editor and art director, had a professional relationship with the creative director and we decided to go off and start our own agency, which we did for five years. And then I had a, my first midlife crisis at 30, got divorced, moved out of my house, decided to leave my job with my partner and sort of recreated my life for the first time And then transitioned into branding. And then, for the first time in my life, well into my 30s, discovered that I had almost like a natural born talent for branding. And then, was it almost confronting to kind of go, God damn, I'm good at this? It was revelatory. And I had never really felt particularly good at anything. And so, the idea that I was good at something and successful at it, making money from it, it almost felt like magic. And that's really when my career took off. And so the success and the joy and fulfillment from the success was something I just wanted more and more and more and more and more of. And so I just worked harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. And then ultimately went to Sterling And because of my success, was able to sort of reclimb the ladder to a degree. So I went from doing biz dev to ultimately becoming president of the design division and then a partner in the firm because of how well I did it. And there, of course, 20 plus years,
0: you are responsible for some of the most iconic brands from the rebrand of Burger King and Star Wars merchandise and so many brands that so many people know and love. You talked though earlier about you know, you've had many rejections and failures and you do seem to have some quite notorious stories and experiences, but I actually think that's sometimes your gift as a storyteller. But, you know, you described what I think you termed as, you know, a takedown of your entire career on an early (laughs) blog site. You know, how did that affect you
1: when you read that? Well, so just to paint the picture for you, I got to Sterling in 1995 And worked for those first eight years, just 24-7, trying to make a difference with my work, trying to feel fulfilled, reveling in the success, trying to build an agency, and got a lot of fulfillment, emotional, financial, and having that gave me a real sense of worth. And then in 2003 when i was confronted with this blog post on speak up it suddenly called into question everything that i was doing and i just felt like my whole life was over honestly i felt like my career something that i'd finally found meaning in was being questioned my talent was being completely repudiated and disparaged and I was ashamed, humiliated, and inconsolable at that time and felt like I might have to quit and and start over. And for context, for memory, the
0: blog was written by a highly well, well-known, highly regarded designer and, and
1: critic, was it? Well, it was written by Felix Sockwell and it was on Armin Witt's blog, Speak Up, which doesn't exist anymore. He started another blog which became even more popular and that's called Brand New. And Armin and I are actually quite good friends right now. It wasn't so much that the that the writer of the article was the only part of this. It was the comments. And you know, we I didn't know about blogs. I did blogging was the first discipline that really allowed for comments. And seeing those comments and being called the she devil and a corporate clown and everything that I had tried so hard not to be, see my work called into question like that. First of all, I thought I was gonna get fired from my job for being in a position to have the firm talked about in a in that manner. I was humiliated and ashamed. And Felix wrote the piece, but Quite a lot of the speak-up community participated in the comments and, and, and in this takedown, so to speak. But at the end of the day, well, or at the end of that experience, it's probably three or four weeks into the experience, I ended up writing into the comments myself, trying to, as less defensively as possible, talk about why we made the decisions to do the work that we did, try to get that, crowd to understand how the market research informed our design work as opposed to curtail it and ultimately felt like I was able to express my point of view with a lot of integrity and also elegantly where I didn't resolve to name calling and histrionics. That experience ultimately changed the course of my life because After that experience, Armin reached out to me. He apologized for calling my work a pair of turds. He didn't take back the fact that he still felt that my work was a pair of Uh. turds, but he apologized for the way he expressed it. But ultimately, he and I became very good friends. He asked me to write for the site. I became one of the writers, I mean, the godmother to his oldest daughter. Um, We've been friends ever since. That was 2003. So we're talking about now a 17-year friendship. That's incredible. How did you pick yourself
0: up given it was such a takedown and you initially felt you'd wanted to sort of potentially quit the industry? What did you learn from that experience that might help others who are also feeling bruised from criticism or rejection?
1: Well, essentially, I learned that what might seem like the very worst day of your life could actually end up being the most important day. And my life slowly began to change in terms of what I was being offered to do and different opportunities that came out of it, but it didn't all happen at once. And so I didn't quite understand right away that this moment in time was ultimately going to be the doorway into a new life. The first thing that happened was Armin invited me to write for the blog, which then I started to do. I was then invited to join the other Speak Up writers at a conference in Vancouver en route to the conference on the airplane. I met the editor-in-chief of Print Magazine and struck up a conversation and then ultimately a friendship and then ultimately a relationship with the magazine where I continued to write for the magazine and now, 17 years later, I'm one of the owners of the magazine. I was introduced to Stephen Heller at the conference which then turned into his recommending me for my very first book. And then ultimately his asking me to help develop and then launch the world's first master's degree program in branding at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. So it was one thing that just begat another, that begat another, that began another. And ultimately found that the path of my life was impacted every single thing that I'm doing today Is I can sort of see the threads of all of those experiences set forth from that moment in 2003.
0: That's pretty amazing. And, you know, what was it that enabled you to keep going in those
1: early days? Well, I thought about it a lot and ultimately feel that I had one notch more hope about what my life could become than shame about what my life was. That's
0: so powerful and so evocative. Yeah, it really is.
2: You know, the thing that really occurs to me is it takes a lot, I think, to let grudges go. And it feels like you allowed people that had hurt you quite significantly then become major people in your life. And that has helped your journey. Did you do that consciously? Or is that just something? Is that just you in your makeup?
1: Well, it's a very profound question that I've never considered asking myself, but you're right. (laughs) I actually never thought about that consciously. I haven't done that with everybody, I might say. But in this particular case, it was not something that I thought about or have thought about until this moment. And so isn't that interesting?
2: Yeah, it is interesting because I think it takes a big person to allow somebody to then become part of their life when they've really hurt you.
1: Well, you know, the interesting thing is I don't know that they knew who they were hurting. They saw me from a distance. They saw the kind of work I was doing. They didn't like it. They didn't understand it and they criticized me for it. Mm. The moment I joined the conversation, things did change. Some people were more respectful, others weren't. But ultimately, I think that I gained the respect of the people that were criticizing me by the virtue of being me, a person, and then was treated with more kindness and generosity. Yeah, I could have just said, you know, screw off, I don't want anything to do with you. You hurt me, you offended me. But I also have to say that at the time, I did admire the forum that they had created to communicate about design in real time. I did find that fascinating. I had never seen that before. And Nor had the world. This was the world's first design block. So there was a part of me that was, I don't know if I would use the word awe, but certainly inspired by this new technology that was quite robust. And that's what I told Armin when he wrote to apologize to me. You know, this is a really interesting forum you've created. And I think it should be more than just taking down people's work. And so ultimately he did take that seriously and then invited me to be a writer. So there was a moment there where there was mutuality and I was able to take advantage of an opportunity that I wouldn't have been given otherwise.
2: Yeah, fantastic. I mean... To be honest, we can't now go any further without mentioning Design Matters because Design Matters is your award-winning, incredibly pioneering, wonderful podcast, which is so inspiring to so many people, whether they're in the design industry or whether they're in the podcasting industry or whether they're just genuinely curious about people. You launched your podcast in 2005, so that actually wasn't that long after the 2003 podcast takedown
1: right and I do think that there is a possibility and I'll never know this for sure but I think that there's a possibility that the producers of my first my first round of podcasting with voice america might have learned about me through speak up because of my writing I was contacted by voice america I thought they were offering me a job. They were actually offering me an opportunity to pay them to produce a podcast for me. Well, it was actually a radio show. It wasn't a podcast at that point. And so because at that point I was really looking to do less commercial things with my creativity, thought it might be an interesting opportunity to create something that wasn't only about a return on an investment and shareholder value, as I had been doing in my branding work. And so I started paying them to do this radio show, which was broadcast live once a week. It was rebroadcast sometime in the middle of the night. And unless people were listening at the time that I was creating it, live weren't really part of the process of it being a live radio show. And so Bryony Gomez Palacio, one of the founders of Speak Up, suggested that I upload the audio files to iTunes so that people could listen whenever they wanted to and not only have these opportunities either live or when it was rebroadcast in the middle of the night. And that's what I did.
2: Wow. So you must have been one of the first
1: podcasters. Yes. I am one of a handful of people that started podcasting in 2005 that are still podcasting today.
2: Yeah. And I have to say, or we have to say huge respect because we know exactly how much work goes into podcasting.
0: And over the years, the podcast morphed to be sort of from being more mostly about sort of design matters to really exploring, in your words, sort of the trajectory of people's lives and how your guests have overcome obstacles. What are one or two of the most powerful things that you've learned now with the benefit of hindsight of this incredible body of work and this incredible body of conversations
1: with amazing people? Well, I think- the most important is that every life is a journey, and that there's no one that is exempt from hardship or obstacles. There's no one that is immune to insecurity or self doubt. The most successful people in the world still grapple with that. They grapple with whether or not once they are successful, if they'll continue to be successful, if they'll continue to make good work, resonant work. So I think that everybody is insecure. Everybody is insecure and everyone encounters obstacles and roadblocks and has to figure out how to either get through it or circumvent it. And then the other thing that I've learned is that for most people, mastering anything takes a long time. And that in the same way that it takes time to become good, it also takes time to become known for being good, if that is your desire. And that rushing the process only dilutes your impact. That's so true. And,
0: you know, what I find remarkable is you have managed to succeed in a number of arenas that don't normally cohabit in one person. And what I mean by that is here you are, you have this successful audio product, you have an amazing design and visual career, and you are a writer. And Typically, these things don't cohabit in one person. How the hell has it happened with you? And how have you made it work?
1: I've always blurred the lines in my own life with the things that I do. So while I'm teaching, my students have also all been in the audience while I do my podcast. And so that's a shared experience. The books that I write, I also use in the classroom. So, there's a lot of overlap. Even when I started Design Matters, I was initially interviewing a lot of the clients that I had when I was running a brand consultancy. So, I've always, always, even back when I was in high school, always tended to do a lot of different things at once that helped cross pollinate how I did those things. And I was that way in high school, I was that way in college. I've been that way over the course of my career.
0: Right, and that whole nature of the blurring makes sense to me now. And you co-founded and now chair a master's in branding at the renowned School for Visual Arts in New York, and that was started years ago. You know, what do you hope graduates remember most or take away from their studies?
1: Well, I think that branding is one of the most significant disciplines in our culture. And I think that the condition of branding and the condition of design really reflects the condition of our culture. And everything that we do now impacts the planet and our place here on the planet. And so I. Try to imbue my students with the notion that branding is the manufacturing of meaning and we have the opportunity to create movements now using the very tenets of branding that have been primarily reserved by the corporation and now because of our use of technology because of our skills in communicating as citizens, we have the opportunity to use those talents to remake, redesign the world that we're living in to create movements and change. So the work that I do at the School of Visual Arts and the branding program that I've created helps students understand The role that branding has in our lives now, the particular components of branding that are key to mastering in an effort to really create powerful brands. So cultural anthropology, behavioral psychology, business strategy, economics, as well as creativity and design, and then ultimately how to create powerful brands that can Live in the marketplace in ways that don't harm people. Mm.
2: Fantastic! It's really fascinating, actually. I, until you talked about how branding has changed with technology, I hadn't consciously really thought about it. And it's actually incumbent now on in all of us, isn't it, to understand how to have a brand, how to facilitate branding
1: for good well you know that's that's where it all began i mean we started mark making 32000 years ago in the cave walls of lascaux where we were documenting our reality and we were we were recording our experiences those those marks helped to develop The visual language of that time. About 6,000 years ago, our ancestors began to design telegraphic symbols to represent beliefs and to identify affiliations. And these symbols, which became our first religious symbols, connected like minded people. And they're all rather extraordinary. And many of them are still living today. And those affiliations allowed us to feel safer and more secure in groups. And then that sharing created consensus, that sharing amplified the use and created consensus around what the symbols represented. But those symbols were all created in what I now refer to as a bottom-up manner. It was all man-made, citizen-made. And those early affiliations shared identical characteristics, which is very surprising and somewhat astonishing given how scattered we were all over the planet. We all constructed very eerily similar rituals and practices and behaviors. No matter what the religion was, we all created these symbolic devices. We built environments for a place to worship. We developed strict rules around how to engage with food. And that's the way it was for Almost all of time, it's only in the last 160 or so years that we have started to use these behaviors to sell products for financial gain. The first trademark brand was Bass Ale, and Bass Ale was trademarked on January 1st, 1876. The original way in which we designated meaning through symbols was then appropriated by the corporation. We then, beginning in the late 1800s, began a whole new way of using branding for financial gain. And the mass marketed products were top-down brands. They were still created by people, but they were owned and operated and manufactured and advertised and designed and promoted and distributed by the corporation and pushed down and sold to citizens for financial gain. And and that's pretty much the way it was until about 10 years ago when citizens once again began to take back those powers to create movements. And we saw that begin with the Arab Spring. we saw that with Occupy Wall Street, and then move into movements like Black Lives Matter and Me Too and Time's Up. And you know these movements are also now created by the citizens, for the citizens and have no financial result. It's all about creating a world that we want to live in as opposed to creating a return on investment. And that's pretty exciting.
2: That is pretty exciting. And what do you think the future looks like?
1: Oh, I don't know. (laughs) Great answer. (laughs) I'm an analyst, not a futurist. And so I find it, I like to connect the dots to understand the moment we're in. It's very, very hard for me, frankly, to see even beyond November, 2020, because of what is occurring in the world and in the United States with our political system. So it's very hard for me to, to predict. You know, I look to people like Dee Dee Gordon and Faith Popcorn to help me understand the future. Also William Gibson, he tends to write some of the most extraordinary science fiction that tends to be predictive of the future somehow.
2: Yeah, wow. Well, I, you know, I feel like we could talk about that topic for hours and hours and
0: hours. You've talked about sort of the breadth of work that you've produced and created over the years. What do you think drives you?
1: Lack of self-esteem.
0: Wow. Even today?
1: Uh, Less so, but yes, still. I think I've used work and producing things to give me a sense of being valuable to be alive, that I'm, I'm doing something that's meaningful because I don't feel meaningful. Like if I'm doing something meaningful, then that helps me to feel meaningful, even if I don't. But that doesn't really last because we metabolize those things really quickly. And then you're just sort of left with who you are anyway. Yeah. And that's um, a conundrum I have yet to be able to circumvent. I'd like to think that I'm just doing work for the pure pleasure of doing it and nothing more. But I think that while it is really pleasurable. It also fulfills some holes in my psyche that I'm still looking to and working on repairing.
0: If you were having to advise a listener about building their own self-esteem and uh, validating themselves rather than looking to the external, what would you say?
1: I would say that recognize that we metabolize our successes very quickly And if your idea of success is publishing a book or doing a TED talk or performing cats on stage, that once you do those things, you'll enjoy them and feel proud, but then you'll want the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing. And so you really do have to have a foundation of feeling okay as is, because those things will not fill you up permanently they'll only do it temporarily. And it's this hedonistic treadmill that we humans tend to get on thinking that our next accomplishment or our next achievement or our next purchase or our next relationship or whatever it is that we're seeking will finally fulfill us.
0: Yeah. It's sort of like, it's the decoys to what actually can be fulfilling genuinely. Is that fair paraphrasing?
1: Yeah, to a degree. I I mean, I don't think that those things are void of of providing some type of pride, but ultimately it's not going to make up for a lack of self-esteem. That's good advice.
0: Now, you talked about in some things not being able to see beyond November, but what exciting projects or goals are on your radar for the months and years ahead
1: for you? Well, I'm getting ready to start another year of teaching with a brand new cohort of students and right now I am working on how to best recreate the program in a new environment given that it's now at least for the time being primarily online. What was a very intensive in-person experience is now an intense online experience. i working on a book, which I'm way behind on and was uh, scolded by my editor today, which was difficult, but warranted. And that is a book about the podcast called Why Design Matters. And it's about 15 years of podcasting. And earlier this year, we relaunched the print magazine website with my new partners, one of which is Steve Heller, really trying to make something new with that. So that's keep me busy.
2: Gosh, that's a lot. And a new marriage as well. Yeah, and a newlywed, yes. In, <laughs> in a time of COVID. <laughs> in a time of COVID, exactly. One question that we like to ask all of our guests is, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give your thirty-year-old self?
1: I would tell my thirty-year-old self to moisturise.
2: <laughs> that is the first time we've ever had that answer. And what what do you think the difference would be?
1: Um, better skin at fifty-nine. <laughs> <laughs> it looks damn good to me. Oh, thank you. Oh, I would tell myself not to worry so much. And I would tell myself to definitely not date that guy in the pool hall that I met in 1999.
2: (laughs) Was that the one that became your husband or was that
1: after your husband? No. Oh God, no, no, no. (laughs) I I did not marry this one, thankfully. He was a response to the second marriage not working out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And what's the best advice you've ever been given? The best piece of advice that I was given came in a fortune cookie and it was a fortune that stated, do not compulsively make things worse.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant.
1: <laughs>
2: Great <Yep>. advice.
1: <laughs> Best advice ever. <laughs> That's one to have right in front of you every day, isn't it? I actually had it taped taped on my, my laptop for years and years and years until it disintegrated. <laughs> oh my God, brilliant.
2: Well, on that note, Thank you so much, Debbie, for such a wonderful conversation. It's been a real privilege to be able to talk to you. Now, for those listeners who haven't tuned in to all of the amazing things that you do, where's the best place for them to find out more about you?
1: Uh, probably the best place is on my website, com
0: fantastic well we will put that in the show notes and I can attest that there is a wealth of uh, amazing work and links and resources there well that just leaves me to thank you again debbie
2: for your absolute generosity to share your amazing story and we look forward to seeing the new book uh, hearing about the new course and and what you're doing and watching your incredible work so thank
0: you Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you so much. It's a real honor to be on your podcast. Please say hi to everyone in the glorious land of Australia. And I hope to encounter you in person someday soon.
0: Absolutely. Likewise. Absolutely. Well, we hope to see you soon. Take care. Thank you. Debbie's take on how branding has morphed back to being created by the people, for the people, and for movements that can make the world a better place, it's really inspiring, isn't
2: it? Yeah, it really is. And it's great to hear actually something positive and hopeful, isn't it? Oh, that's for sure. I also love how Debbie talks so openly about her tough times, particularly when her career was being attacked. I mean, can you imagine reading about yourself and and being called a she-devil and a
0: corporate clown? It's really hard to imagine how you would feel in that moment. And, you know, I think it was incredibly brave of her to enter into that conversation at the time, or just a few weeks later, despite the nature of those criticisms.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And look at what opportunities emerged in her her career as a result of her willingness to engage constructively with her critics.
0: Yeah, as she said, you know, um, what was her worst day became probably the most important. important day in her career incredible absolutely
2: well that's this episode done and dusted if you've enjoyed today's show why not share it with someone you think needs
0: some inspiration great idea and we'll be back here next week with a future proof me mini episode ciao for now